So this morning, we are uh, asking God to orient our hearts and our minds to, to focus on the mission of Christ. Mission. Like, mission is the focus this Sunday. That's part of the reason why we abbreviated the service. So we, we're only singing um, two songs and then a benediction. And another reason why we confessed, this is one of the lengthier liturgy and confessional prayers that we have at, at our church. But the whole idea here is that God would shape us to be a people that see uh, our mission, like the call of Christ to make disciples, as not something just for the professionals and not something just for the paid staff people, the clergy, whatever, the missionaries that go overseas, that the mission of God is a call that weighs heavy on every single person, every believer. Everyone that confesses Christ as their Lord and Savior is called and empowered to a life of mission, like a missional life. We want to be a missional church because we believe that God's people are a missional people. That's just part of what it means to be a Christian, is that we are joining Jesus in a rescue mission to reach the lost. And it's a delightful mission to be on. So uh, that's the flavor of this Sunday morning. And then afterwards, we're going to go eat some food. And uh, you're welcome. If you didn't prepare for this, totally cool. Like, no one's going to pressure you and uh, twist your arm to stay. But if you want to know more about our local church, this is the perfect week to stick around afterwards. We're going to have a little potluck uh, meal. We're going to hang out. And I'm going to go through the mission and vision of our local church. So I'm going to pop the hood on what our philosophy of ministry is, like what our mission is, values, some of our networks that we partner with. So a lot of nuts and bolts stuff that I think that you would be interested in. Uh, because at the end of the day, this has to be more than just a me thing. Um, this has to be more than just the Nick and Holly and our family thing. Like, this has to be God's people coming together as the church to reach the lost. This has to be an us thing. So this is my um, invitation to you to stick around and let's make it an us thing. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into the text. Heavenly Father, I pray for the person specifically in this room right now that the last thing they want to hear is to go do something. The person that everything in them is in survival mode. They don't want to be told to go do stuff, talk to people, join things, give time, talent, treasures. I pray for the tired and, and the worn out this morning that they would find a cup of kindness from you, that they would hear the call to drink deeply from the living water, and that that would produce in them a peace. Peace. So I pray that this morning, that you would bring peace that surpasses all understanding by the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Acts 1. If you guys don't have a Bible, uh, you just have your app, like just click Acts 1, and uh, we're going through verses 1 through 10. And like I said, our... Uh, 
our focus last week was we basically are doing a copy-paste service. We were abbreviated last week's service for the same idea, the same goal, to make the, the emphasis, like, okay, when I write my sermons, like, I have to manuscript because I'm not a very good extemporaneous public speaker. The problem with that sometimes is it becomes too dense, and I'm trying to communicate too many things at once. And, uh, and so the focus this morning is the same idea that people have when they trim down sermons or trim down uh, coaching speeches that they give to their athletes, whatever it is, uh, teachers in the classroom, I want you to see that Christ is calling you to get on mission. If you take nothing else away from this morning is that we serve a missional God and He sought you in love. He sought you before you were even looking for Him. He's calling you to do the same thing. Come on, we got more people to reach. And so our focus as a church is to join Jesus and his mission to seek and save the lost. So Luke 19 says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Like it doesn't get any more simple than that as far as mission statements go. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Now, one of the cool things you read in the, in the gospel of Luke is Jesus did a lot of life with his bros around the table. He gathered around meals quite often. That's why he earned a reputation of being a drunkard and a glutton because he hung out with a lot of guys that were. And so Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and it says that he came eating and drinking. So you could say that Jesus' mission statement was to seek the lost, and his strategy was to get around the table. That's a pretty good summary of what our focus is as a church plant. If you could say, if you could sum up our whole mission strategy with one word, it would be food. Food. Food is the universal language, right? Like, everyone's got to eat. And so, getting around the table with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, hostile to Jesus, maybe searching for Jesus, has no idea, whatever, we can get around the table. I mean, there's a reason grandmas bribe you with food. Because you know that's going to get you in the door. Like, grandma wants to spend time with you. You should want to spend time with grandma. And that's why she's showering you with food. It's the same idea with Jesus. Jesus wants to spend time with the lost because he loves the lost. And so he's getting to where the lost are, which is around the table. So feasting is a huge part of what we're after here at Hope City Church. And that's why our mission statement is to grow a family that practices the way of Jesus. Because before anything, church, I don't know, I don't know what you've interpreted. A lot of people, when they just kind of casually think about church, they think of church as well, I don't know. Think about it. What do people think about church? What is church? You probably think it's a building, maybe. You have friends that believe that that's what a church is. It's a building. Um, it's an organization. It's got budgets and spreadsheets, and, and we follow Robert's rules of order when we sit down and have meetings. Or it's an institution. You know, you think of the Catholic church or the Anglican church. It's an institution. Or you think uh, maybe it's a social club like do good things, like the Masons. Well, the church is referred to as the household of God in the New Testament. It's our first family. Because some of you in here, well, all of you in here, have, have a family. You have some type of family. You have blood relationship to people. You came from a mom, and you know you have the siblings or children or grandparents or whatever, and you know that that's your family. Well, the gospel is that 
Jesus' love and, and his work of redemption transcends bloodlines. It's not blood and soil that unites us fundamentally to God and to one another. That's why anyone, regardless of their political affiliation, ethnicity, um, whether they're blue collar, white collar, whatever, can, can come into the church and belong, like really belong. It's because the work of Christ crucified knocks down all the dividing walls. And so now, what are we? We're a family. We're a first family. So for those of you that don't, don't have a good relationship with family members, you, you know this to be true just like experientially. You cling to this. Because there's a lot of orphans out there, whether they're spiritual orphans and they don't have a place to belong, or whether they're actual orphans, people that don't have a family. The church is your family. God is Father, and you are His beloved children. And that's a beautiful picture. And so, above all, we want to be a church that um, builds on that as our foundation. We want to be the family of God, not primarily an organization that throws their weight around with money, not primarily an entertainment group that, you know, oh man, this is awesome here because this, this, and this. We want people to, to feel relationally connected to God and to one another. That's it. But the question is, especially for those of you that are, are worn out, I mean, let's just be honest. Like, if I'm, if I'm selling Girl Scout cookies uh, and I'm telling you to go hit, hit the streets to sell, you know, cookies to raise money for some Something. I mean, a lot of you are going to be reluctant to that. COVID, um, work schedules, everything's disrupted right now. Nobody wants to, like, do extra stuff. So think about the church. The church is like, go save lost people. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's huge. Like, I don't know how to do that. So it's like infinitely, um, you know, above what we can possibly do with our own strength. It seems not doable. The thing we have to lean into is that Every single person in this Bible, in this story, it didn't make sense for them either. None of these folks had what it took to go and reach lost people, to go and do the work of God, to participate in the kingdom of God. And so that's why we need to be empowered. So it's not enough to stand before you and say, get on mission. All right, chop to it, you know, go make disciples. We need to lean into our power source. Like, where do, we, where do we find the strength to actually go and make disciples? And that strength has to come from God. And so the best place that I know of to turn in the Bible to preach a message on leaning into the power of God is the book of Acts. The whole book is the work of the Holy Spirit empowering ordinary Joes to go around and build the church. So, Acts 1, 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Park on that word wait. That's going to be a huge emphasis. Wait. For the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but, I, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you in heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. So that was actually through 11. So if there's any sticklers in here. By the way, I have to say this. Every week I've been wanting to say this. During a sermon, like three, four weeks ago, I got fact-checked, straight-up fact-checked, and I will, I will not say who did that, but I was making a big show about it, and I pointed over to that back window, and I said, and St. Irenaeus has a, has a stained-glass window right over there, and uh, it was, it's not St. Irenaeus. It's like Matthias or something like that. So, I just want you to be aware that sometimes you're going to get some, if I'm going off the text, you have to keep an eye on me, just throwing that out there. So, last year around this time, um, for me, I don't know, if, I'm just going to assume some of you don't know my story. Last year about this time, I was dealing with uh, a pretty tough circumstance. I came to Clinton with my family. I grew up here, but we moved back here to plant this church. And last year, July-ish, we bought an old house on Garfield Street, old Victorian. It's charming giant brute. And uh, I was working on the house, and the plan was my family was going to stay with my parents in the split four, little split four that I grew up in on Meadowview, and we were going to stay there until we finished the house. And Holly will be the first one to tell you, like, I was going to be doing all the work. She was ready for, like, a little bit of a vacation. We had just had a baby, and, you know, she was like, all right, I'm just going to chill while Nick works on the house, gets it ready, paints, all that kind of stuff. Well, I'm, like, patching plaster in the back half of the house, and uh, I'm standing like, like an idiot, and I fall into the window that's back there. And my right arm goes through the window. The rest of my body stayed in the hallway. So I fell down on a piece of glass, and if any of you are queasy in here, just like try not to picture this, but I, it cut my arm, and I severed my ulnar and my median, or my ulnar and my median nerve. And uh, anyways, that was like, that had the force of a parable for me. So I came to Clinton with, oh, I was revved up. I'm like, I'm going to use all the talent that I've accumulated, whatever that is. I'm going to use all of the know-how and my body and everything. I'm just going to like hit the sled as hard as I can. And we're going to plant this church. And you should have seen my full focus planner. I had like dreams and goals and all sorts of stuff written on there. And then everything just stopped. It's exactly like what happened to my hand. The nerves got cut, the lights went off, done. And so I had to spend the next several months slowing down, waiting. It was really difficult for me. I mean, I couldn't, I can't describe to you like how abrupt that felt to me. I mean, I was ready to go. I'm like, I was in go mode, ready to make disciples, come here, get you guys on mission. Um, I was excited. And then, and then I had to wait 
And so what my injury forced me to do, which is what I read all over the scriptures, is that God's people are called to wait constantly. I mean, it's one of the most constant story uh, themes in the scriptures is we are awaiting people. Wait, wait, wait. There's tons of waiting all over the place. And to use a biblical word, you guys, I mean, wilderness. The, the theme of wilderness is massive. Jesus went to the wilderness. The, the Israelites went into the wilderness. I mean, this, one of the strongest storylines is that God's people are tested and refined in the wilderness. And so for me, that's what it became. It became a wilderness sort of experience for me, testing my faith, testing my call. And, uh, and I bring this up because I know a lot of you in this room are in a similar season. Or you've been in a similar season, and you can relate to this. Um, you've gone through a season of testing where it turned your world upside down. You had a business endeavor that you were totally set on starting, and things got turned off. You know, you, you had a, um, you know, family dreams and goals or whatever, and stuff just got stopped. And that forces you, it forces you to be in a place that God actually wants you to be in. The place of faith, right? Place of dependence. This is the moment when the rubber meets the road. Is God real or not? Because it's all fine and dandy when we confess God. God's doing this. God's truth says this. I'm going to go do this. But then when we are unable to live our lives like normal and the results that we're after, we're unable to just manipulate and grab tools and make it happen. Now we're in a place where we're like, God, you got to act. God's got to be the one to make this happen. So that's what the wilderness produces. It, produces. it produces trust. Radically hard circumstances for people produce an opportunity to trust in the Lord. And in that moment, God reveals himself to be real in your life. Like real. So a lot of you are in survival mode, but, but the, the call of Christ, it still weighs heavy on us. And so we need to lean into like, how are we actually going to do this? So verses one through three, Context here. Just jump back into the book of Acts. Verses 1 through 3. The context here is this. This story is post-resurrection. So Jesus has already lived his life, taught his teachings, and healed people, and all this. And he died on the cross. You guys are familiar with that. Spoiler alert. He died on the cross. And then uh, he resurrected. Which surprised the heck out of everybody. Right? I mean, it's not very surprising to us now because we've heard it over and over and over and over and over again. But like these guys were floored. They were like, what? This is going to happen now? You're going to rise from the dead? And so this is after the resurrection, but this is pre-ascension. I'll talk more about the ascension later. But um, so Jesus is out walking around with his boys again. He's talking to them. He's preparing them. And what what I want you to observe is that just like Jesus, uh, he's giving the, he's already gave the great commission. So just like these guys, Jesus has given his boys the great commission. Go make disciples. We've been given that commission. We're familiar with that. Go make disciples. So we're in a similar spot. Go out. And so they're in go mode. They're in go mode. But then you go to verses four through five. It says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. So stay put, wait, 
Wait for what? Wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. Wait for the Holy Spirit. So I I just want you to feel the momentum killer there. These guys were floored, jaw on the floor, resurrection happens. And remember, like a little piece of biblical context here is that these guys thought the Messiah was going to be like a political hero. I mean, a lot, it's a lot of how you all look, and I'm putting myself included, how we all are, gravitate towards heroes. Whether it's comic book heroes or political heroes, we're, we're drawn towards people that can get the job done and save the world. They thought Jesus was that guy. They were like, okay, um, Romans oppressing us, taxes are high, families are suffering, I got put food on the table. We also have a ton of um, history where we were the top dogs. We had a kingdom. We want to be restored. And they thought Jesus was going to do that, that he was going to be the Messiah that would come in and, uh, and just restore them and liberate them, and it was going to happen like then, then and there, and then it didn't. And so it's bizarre when Jesus is like, why don't you just camp out here? I'm going to peace in a little bit. You need to stay here. And they're like, I don't, what are we doing here? So this is a momentum killer. They were ready. They were hungry. Think about all the homeschool co-ops they could have started. All the businesses they could have started up and houses and properties they could have restored. All the gardens they could plant. And then Jesus is like, well, time to go. I got to go. And they're like, oh, you can just picture him. They're sitting in a room and they're like, all right, let's go. Let's go do the thing. And then he's like, why don't you just wait? Just chill. It's super counterintuitive. Jesus is telling them to wait for the power and the presence of God to come. The power and the presence of God to come to them through the Holy Spirit. So verse 6. When they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So you can just feel their, their, their question here reveals their ambition, their hunger, their desire for change. I mean, you all have a desire for change, right? So you, you have to put yourself in the situation like you're asking the Lord the same thing except in different ways. Is this the time when the kingdom of God will come? Is this the time? Is this when my marriage is finally going to have the breakthrough that I want? Is this going to be finally when my business hits that mark that I've been hoping for? This is finally when my church is going to do all the things that I hoped it would do. My kids, this is when they're finally going to, you know, they're going to get into that right thing and that right program and with the right friend group and everything's just going to pop off. Is this the time when the kingdom of God is going to come? Is this the time? when the world will finally shake off all its brokenness and all the problems will be fixed around us. This is what you also want to know. But desiring change is a dangerous thing, right? It, because it opens up, it, it cracks the door open. It cracks the door open for you to be let down. I mean, this is just one of those things that you don't even need the the scriptures to tell you this. You just know this by experience, is that the stronger you desire for something and wish for something to happen or whatever you want to, whatever language you want to attach to that, if it doesn't happen, you have just opened yourself up to be crushed. 
This is why apathy is so rampant in people that have been hurt. They just callous themselves off and they don't want to hope for anything. I don't want to let my guard down and hope, let my hopes, you know, put my hope in anything. So what if Clinton never turns the corner? What if we're in a dying, we are in a dying town, but what if the, what if the decline is just going to keep going? What if the business that you start fails? What if you have a miscarriage? You know your hopes and dreams, they're fragile. They're fragile things. They're like little treasures in jars of clay that, you know, if you, you roughhouse a little too much, it gets bumped, wobbles, goes off the table. They, this is the tendency of things. So I, I personally have a soft spot for disillusioned and heartbroken people because over the last 10 years, uh, I mean, every single person, this is, this is just everyone deals with this, no matter if you're young or old or whatever. Um, but for whatever reason, I feel like millennials, there's something about the millennial generation that we're living through a very heartbreaking disillusionment. Like, over the last 10 years, I've watched people my age that I've done ministry with, um, that are excited about the church, excited about Jesus. I used to be in a Christian metalcore band, and there was a lot of passion in that. A lot of go mode in that, right? Like, heavy music, let's go share the gospel, let's load up this trailer full of music gear and just like hit the road. I saw a lot of people in that scene even excited about Jesus, and then experience heartbreak. Done. Gone. They fell off the wagon, or whatever the expression is. Disillusionment. The door cracked open. They let their hopes get up, and then they got hurt. And they fell away, and they became bitter and angry, and now they're like, a lot of my friends, like a lot of my acquaintances and friends, a lot of these people are friends I have on Facebook, and I see them basically throwing rocks at passing ships, you know, like passing Christians going by and they're just like, ah, you know, you guys, your Christianity, every turn is like, they're trying to tear it down because they're hurt. That old expression, hurt people, hurt people. You've heard that. So people do because sin is in the world. Brokenness is in the world. So hear me loud and clear on this. You're setting yourself up for the most massive heartbreak of your entire life if you treat Christianity or Jesus as a means to an end. It will crush you. You will fall away from church. You will fall away from all of these things because they won't, they won't get you what you want. If Jesus is not the gospel, if God himself is not the goal and object of our faith, if it is something else, if it's a successful business, if it's for people to like you, if it's, the cha- if it's even good things, changing Clinton and having renewed marriage, all those things are really good things that we should desire and want. But if God is simply a tool or a joystick or a button to push, and he's not the object of your affections, your heart's delight, if he is not your friend, your dad, your near presence and comfort in times of trouble, then you're setting yourself up to be a statistic, to be a post-Christian statistic, 
to join the rest, that you might as well just go to the gym or the coffee shop. Why are you coming here? This is not going get, to get you health, wealth, and prosperity. You guys know this. You know that this church especially is not. Now, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer this morning. I'm just saying this stuff is, is reality, and we need to confront it. The disciples here, the apostles here had to confront it. Is this when you're going to renew and make all things new, Jesus? Is this when it's going to happen? Guys, he says, this is not for you to know. This verse here says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. There are just things in this world you just don't know. God knows. But we live in this strange tension period. It's called, have you guys ever heard of the already not yet kingdom? So we live in this, in this time where we have a gospel to preach. Something has been done. The world has changed. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, making a way for you to have nearness to God, the almighty God. Jesus has done that. We should go proclaim that from the, the mountaintops to everybody. And yet, we still live in a world where things rust, buildings still crumble, we still have to do termite inspections. I mean, there's all sorts of brokenness that still exists in this world because Jesus has already died and rose from the dead, but he has not yet come back to restore everything that he promises to do. He will. One day he will. But until that day happens, we are called to faith. Faith. It's that hard tension in the, in the believer's life. Nobody likes feeling that tension. But we're called into that. We're called into that. And so, Jesus' words here, they steady the apostles. I believe that Jesus right here is, is teaching us the way in which we can... There's a, there's a scene. Um, you guys have ever read the book uh, Catcher in the Rye? probably had to read it maybe in high school or something. Well, there's this scene that haunts me from that book, is that the whole book is basically a coming-of-age story of, um, I think it's Holden Caulfield is the guy's name, and yeah, so all my, my literature folks in here. Holden Caulfield, he is so concerned with everything being fake, phony, cheesy. He's got a hyper-awareness for authenticity, which is a real similarity between millennials. Modern millennials have the same sort of bent. I mean, most of you do, naturally, but millennials, this is like the volume's just jacked up on this. And so we're walking around the world, um, like Holden Caulfield, looking at things and going, that's schmaltzy, that's cheesy, that's this, this, and this. And there's a scene, the whole book is about losing innocence, but there's a scene in the book where he, uh, he's at the edge of a cliff. Behind him, rocks, you know, super high up. And uh, there's, kid, there's kids, children, playing in the rye fields. This is where they get the name Catcher in the Rye. And these kids are running around, and they don't know that there's a cliff there. And so he's standing in this rye field, trying to keep these children from running off the edge. I often think of that with Jesus. I think of his commitment to being the catcher in the rye. I think of him standing there while, while I've watched friend after friend and acquaintance after acquaintance 
become dissatisfied and disillusioned with church because it has not given them what they wanted. And then they run from it. They vomit it out because it's, it's just, it's, it's hard to look at. It reminds them of all the heartbreak. But Jesus here, I believe, is, is steadying the apostles. He's keeping them from the cliff. He's refocusing their ambition, which is exactly what Jesus needs to do with our church plant. What he needs to do with, regardless of you call this place your church home, he needs to do that with every single Christian on the planet, refocusing us. And so look at verses 7 and 8. He shifts their focus from, from using Jesus as a means to an end, or using the movement, right? The Jesus movement. He's shifting it. Something's, the focus is going somewhere else. He's calling their attention to the presence and the power of God. Look what he's doing. It's just right there in the text. It's not for you to know the times and seasons, but what do they receive? What do they know? God, the Holy Spirit. That's what they're called to wait for. They're called to wait, wait for the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God to come into their life. And then a strange thing happens because if you read, you know the the rest of the story in the book of Acts, we're products of it. That movement spread. It it was effective. People met Jesus. People built things. They did things. And so the Holy Spirit did get them on mission. They did change things. But what we see in here is that when we stop treating Jesus as a means to an end and see him as the end, he is the goal being in the presence, in the nearness of God himself, then that starts to become a fountain in your life. It starts to become a bubbly overflow sort of thing. So out of the overflow, Christians become useful. Christians become on mission. They, they change things. They build things. They do things. And that shift right there keeps you, I think, guards you from the great danger of disillusionment and cynicism and heartbreak. It isn't going to keep you from all heartbreak and problems because we live in a broken world. But Jesus is calling our attention to be in, presence, in the presence of God. And so here's the thing. If you don't know God personally, believe the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are no longer separated by your sin if you have faith in God. By grace alone, through faith alone. You believe that Jesus took on all the sin. He took on all of the things, the consequences, the nasty curse that keeps us separated from the living God. And he obliterated that on the cross. And so now when Jesus looks at the believers, he sees Christ's righteousness. And so you are able to be in the presence of God if you believe Jesus. If you believe in and have faith in and trust in Jesus. You don't have to have a successful business. You don't have to know a lot of things. You don't have to do anything. And that's why Jesus has the audacity to say, wait. Wait. It's not up to you. Your call is to be, you're a human being, not a human doer. Your call is to believe in Jesus and be and so, Jesus, what happens when we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it radically reshapes and, and shifts our priorities. And, uh, and so, one of the things I want you to notice is verse 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11. 
we see the doctrine of the ascension. Um, I'm just going to pretend you guys haven't heard of it, just so that I can assume we're all on level ground here. The ascension is exactly what it sounds like. Jesus ascended. This was a royal act. This wasn't just simply, look, God is crazy different than us. So if we're trying to describe some crazy stuff like going to heaven, we have to use metaphorical language. So the cloud that comes out of nowhere and grabs Jesus and he just vanishes off into the sky. Well, we don't believe that heaven is literally in, in the clouds, right? We've, we've driven planes through the clouds. So there's no heaven there, right? So what we're seeing here is metaphorical, poetic language to describe what really happened, which is Jesus got taken to God's space. This is heaven, to be with God bodily. I mean, this, this is massive theology that if we don't understand, it will flatten our, it will make us impotent. Because what happens in this moment when Jesus is taken up into heaven, this is just imagery, it's like a king climbing into his throne. So the imagery that you see, like, if you uh, pay attention to, like, monarchies or read history, this, this would have been way more familiar to people back before there was, like, democratic republics. Um, because, you know, Joe Biden doesn't, like, ascend to the throne. You know, that would make us really uncomfortable. But kings used to. They had a big old throne that they would have to climb up onto, and then from the throne, what do they do? They rule. So Jesus here, we see that Jesus is the absolute sovereign king of the universe. He ascended to his throne, and so we are empowered by the king of the universe. Jesus is the one true king of kings and lord of lords, and so our this, this dovetails into the whole waiting thing. You are free because Jesus is king. You're free because you're not king. You're not king. You're not queen. Jesus is. And so I guarantee you, Jesus wants the lost to be saved and redeemed more than you do. I guarantee you, Jesus wants your marriage to flourish more than you do. Jesus is king. Jesus is more vested in this thing than I am. And so, steering into the doctrine of the ascension is what we should do over and over and over again. Christ is king. Christ is king. And that empowers us. It keeps us from being paralyzed. So let me, I'm just going to end with this. In Exodus, um, Exodus, uh, oh, what chapter is that? Well, you guys are familiar with the story of Exodus, right? Where they... Uh, the people are saved from slavery and the Egyptians are chasing them and they get to the Red Sea and there's, you know, they are just, they're all sweaty and terrified because they just fled this evil regime and, they're, and they look back and they're on their heels. They're like coming for them in chariots and swords and strong men. They're going to slaughter them. Every single one of those Jews are going to get slaughtered for, for leaving the way they did. And they were freaked out. And in front of them was this impassable body of water, whatever it was, it just they weren't going to be able to get all their babies and their pregnant women and their elderly all through in time. They were going to lose. And there's a line in, in that. Um, there's a line in there that's worthy of remembering all the time. Is Moses is pleading to God and uh, and God reassures him, and Moses goes before the people, speaking God's word, and says, um, 
I will fight for you. You only have to be silent. And of course, they, they were rescued, right? They go through the sea, they part the Red Sea, and they go, and they, and they go to freedom. And you see this over and over in the story of God's people. Even in Exodus, they're in the wilderness, and Moses, Moses is interceding on behalf of the people. The people have screwed up so bad because they can't wait. They stink at waiting. Just like us, we, we stink at waiting. We're so impatient and itchy. We want to do stuff. We want to see change happen, and so we just run out and do it. The problem is, is that that, oh, that, that that craving to want to make change happen on our own terms, it leads us to put our trust in horses, like the psalm says. It leads us to put our trust in our skill sets. It leads us to put our trust in our tools, things like that, and not God. And so after a devastating uh, experience worshiping the golden calf. You guys remember that story? People couldn't wait. They couldn't wait on Moses. And so they, they literally melted all their rings and they bowed down before this calf and they worshiped it and said, well, this is our God now because we don't know where Moses is at. And we don't know where his God's at. That's what we do in the waiting seasons. We make idols. And Moses, Moses on behalf of the people says to God, remember your steadfast love. He doesn't say, look at all the good things they used to do. Look at all the ways that we've obeyed you. He says, God, remember your commitment to us. Remember your love, your character, your strength, your power. And then there's a line that just wrecks me. Uh, Moses says, God, if you don't come with us, if your presence doesn't go with us and before us, then what's the point? That's a paraphrase. That's Exodus 33. If your presence is not with us, this, this is what makes us distinct. God with us. Emmanuel. Like this, this is the heart. This is the whole deal. This is what keeps us from being a social club. It's what keeps us from being something different than the church. We believe God is with us and among us. So this morning, I just want to speak to you who are disillusioned, heartbroken. You're in a season where you feel like you're in survival mode. The temptation is going to be in survival mode to go to things that are not God. And what I'm urging and encouraging you to do is that God is welcoming you in. He's saying, come to me. I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to comfort you. I want to empower you. I want to give, I want to give your life the animating force that will cause you to be more energized and to be more loving and to, be more, to become more like Christ. But we know that we can't become more like Christ unless we have Christ, to be with Christ. And so that is the longing of my heart as a, as a pastor, um, as your pastor, is that you all would experience the intimate relationship with Jesus, that you would know him. Before we do stuff for him, that you would know him and be with him. Being becomes, comes before doing. So that's, my la that's the urge that I have for you, is that the gospel allows us to do that because you didn't save yourself by pulling yourself up by your own moral bootstraps. God saved you before you even had him on your radar. And that is the source of our freedom. You can just wait. You can be still and know that God is God. So let's do that. Heavenly Father, 
I pray that you would remind everyone in this room of the gospel, that we would camp there. We would just camp there. We'd live there. We would never deviate from coming always back to the gospel of Jesus. And that we would be so eager to be in your presence, like to know you. And, and then out of that overflow, Hope City Church would be the type of people that would just say, come, hey, come, come have what we have. What do you have? God, we have God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.